Croeso i Benod a Benig o Podlediad Music Cymraeg. James Dwey. Neil Dwey. Sut mae'n mynd, mate? Dan dioch, ati. Yeah, perfeith. So, dan i'n siarad Cymraeg heddiw achos mae'n dydd Music Cymru. We're speaking Welsh today because it's dydd Music Cymru, a celebration of all things Welsh language music. Yeah, so um, we uh, teamed up with uh, the guys at Deep Music Cymru, uh, headed by Gareth Cardi Richardson, who's uh, also in Zabrinsky, and um, went to the same school and was in the same year as our guest today, uh, Alice James. And um, yeah, there's loads of good stuff going on now. Yeah, you've got HMS Morris with Cotton Wolf playing in Swansea. There's uh, Papa Wow, Los Blancos, Ernest, Lewis, a club of the Bach in Cardiff. Adwaith are playing up in Liverpool, so great to take the Welsh language out of uh, of Wales. Cassie playing the smallest house in Britain in Conwy. Um, Hannah Touquet and Al Lewis in uh, St David's uh, Shopping Centre in Cardiff. Yeah, and you got Adwaith back with uh, Melly Mel in, in Wrexham on, on the Saturday as well. So guys do a great job all year round trying to promote Welsh language through music and and music's such a great way to sort of like help learn a language and you know I'm trying to learn myself again and music's been really great to that and it's also opened up a lot of music to me. Yeah absolutely um, and it's turned me on to sort of bands like Gan Revan and uh, Los Blancos album last year, uh, Spiriel Gwyn and Adwaith I've got on heavy rotation. Be sure to check out these Music Cymru on the, all the social media where they're posting videos of bands like Adwaith and Los Blancos and uh, Kizzy Crawford who are sort of explaining and translating their lyrics. So yeah, make sure to get out there and support a great weekend with uh, Deep Music Cymru. There's a hell of a lot of um, great stuff going on, as Jamie just said. And uh, yeah, support as much as you can. Thanks for listening again, guys. Really appreciate it. Appreciate the feedback. Diolch Amrando. So Ellis, Croeso. Hello. Hello, Diolch. Croeso, Diolch and Varian, I'm Mike Amser, Heddu. Bless it. So I'm going to get out of the way. I'm a PCD. I'm a retro one. Right. So this was, um, yeah, amazing uh, opportunity to, to speak to you. you. You might need to explain to the listeners what that means. Yeah. So um, a PCD is a podcast devotee and a retro yeah. one means that I've uh, listened to all, I think, 264 episodes of the <laughs> uh, Ellis and John uh, podcast of the radio show that you did on uh, XFM. Good right grief. Track. Well, XFM and, and then it became Radio X. PCD. It's been pointed out to me recently, it should be PD, shouldn't it? Because yeah, podcast obviously one is word. one word, yeah. but it doesn't sound as good. <laughs> oh, well, uh, that's that's very kind of you to say. So let's go back to the start. You were born in Haverford West and then yeah. grew up uh, mostly in Carmarthen. Um, is it a Welsh-speaking home? Yeah, so actually, I've realised the day, I did live in Haverford West longer, but mum and dad are from Carmarthenshire, mum's from Carmarthen itself, my father's from Gwendraith Valley, so my family from Carmarthenshire. Oh, okay. And that's where my grandparents lived, obviously, and then... When when we moved to Carmarthen, and I I went to secondary school, sort of all my formative experiences really are, are from Carmarthen. I, I don't remember much of Haverford West, even though I lived there until I was about ten. <laughs> and I also interestingly, I, I, Haverford West is the one Welsh accent I can't do, even though I'm assuming that's how I spoke when I was younger. The interesting thing I think with Haverford West is that I went to a Welsh unit, so it was part of an English medium primary school, but there was a Welsh unit. And I think in my year, there were, I don't know, four or five boys and I think four girls. And I was the only one uh, who had two parents speaking Welsh at home. So English was the language of Haverford West. And my my mum and dad, or my mum rather, was a, a sort of language protester in, in Haverford West in the early 80s. Because in South Pembrokeshire, there wasn't a huge amount of provision for Welsh speakers because it's largely English speaking. Yeah. And the odd thing with that part of Wales is you go 10 miles up the road and... You're in Crymych and, and Egrusuru, it's, you know, majority, vastly Welsh-speaking. Yeah. I felt a little bit um, left out, I think, because you go to Carmarthen and you'd hear it in the streets and everyone in my grandmother's street spoke it and 
and then I'd go back to Haft West. It was I may as well. It felt like you were in England almost. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I went to a Welsh unit, and then when I moved to Carmarthen, I went to secondary school, and I'm still, you know, friends with a lot of people from Carmarthen. And that secondary school was uh, Eskel Bromerthen. Yeah. And uh, we spoke to Matt from Zabrinski in an earlier episode, and you were in the in the same school year as him, I believe. Briefly in a band with him. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah. Also with um, Sean Harris as well. Yes. And the Gorkies are a little bit older than you. Yeah, they were in sixth form when I was in when we were all in year seven in form one. So. The Gorkies, I mean, they were very, very cool 18-year-olds with a record deal and I was 11. <laughs> but because cause of the way, because of them starting so young and the fact that at the time, because you had programmes like Video Now on S4C, which was the, the music programme where they would, you know, there were lots of great Welsh language bands at the time, so they would make videos for those bands. Yeah. So the Gorkies were on things like that. So I, I watched all that stuff and then you'd, you'd see them walk into A-level lessons. So I think, I genuinely think that altered my personality because, you know, my parents had normal jobs and all my friends' parents had normal jobs. But when I was, you know, 15 or 16, they were on the front cover of the Melody Maker and they yeah. were in the enemy every week and they were single of the week on Radio 1 when Mark and Lard took over the breakfast show and, and all sorts. And, and they, you know, Peel used to play them and Mark and Lard used to play the evening session used to play them. So then it made doing something other than what my mum and dad did or what my friends' parents did. It, it made something else a, a genuine possibility because I think even by the age of 10 or 11, you know, as, as a boy, I was aware that I wasn't going to be a, a footballer. Yeah. And also, I'm mean, obviously I'm a comedian, but I'd never met a comedian and there was very little Welsh comedy. So there was, there was John Sparks doing his thing. and But at the time, really, you know, it was, was pre-Rob Ryden and Rod Gilbert and all that kind of stuff. So there were no real role models other than, you know, you're looking back to people like Ruth Maddock on Heidi High or Max Boyce, but he hadn't, he wasn't doing much stuff. So so it meant that you could come from where I came from and have my kind of background because Aros's mother worked with my mum. Okay. So she she knew Aros's mother really well. My mum worked with Rod Gilbert's dad as well, but obviously <laughs> that, that didn't matter as much because Rod wasn't doing comedy then. But it meant that people like Sabrinsky and then Texas Radio Band and lots of other groups as well, you weren't looking to Nirvana or Oasis, which I think is quite a difficult ambition to have if you're from a small town. Because I know that, you know, Kurt Cobain's from Aberdeen. He's not even from Seattle. Yeah. You know, the Oasis were from Burnage and <laughs> Damon Albums from Colchester. But it, it's still glamorous and different. And and the thing with the Gorkies as well was um, the fact that they, they'd made it into the English language music press by singing in Welsh. Yeah. Uh, I just found so inspiring because... I I'm, I'm I was slightly too young to get Far Coffee Pub when they were around, so I've you know since discovered them. But there was a um, SOC made a documentary about the Super Freelance called Poptastic, mm. and there's a bit where they're being interviewed by Johnny Cigarettes of, of the Enemy, and Griff can't remember the Welsh word for, for de, uh, the English word for deny. Bedigwadi, yeah, bedigwadi. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh my god! And yet they're in Reykjavik and yeah. they're, they're in America and, and all this kind of stuff. The Gorkies were the same. It didn't matter that they were a the Welsh-speaking band who'd gone to my school because my school had an, an, a tremendous and still does record of producing rugby players. Yeah. But I, I wasn't interested in rugby, so <laughs> it was a very, very inspiring thing. And I really wish, actually, that I could bottle that feeling and give it to my kids or to, en to anyone because I think so many talented people never get off the ground because they don't think they can do it. Yeah. And I think everyone needs a role model. And I don't know who the Gorky's role models were, but they they were mine and they, they meant an awful lot to me. Yeah. And uh, talking of talented people, we had um, Matt Dobridge on from Zabrinsky on early on. And um, 
probably a bit too modest, really. And we when we asked him, you know, was there ever like a moment when you could have been a rugby player or? And I think he said, like, once he got to about 16, the band took over in his inch. But he was an incredible player, though. He was, yeah. Um, genuinely, he's far too humble. But I, I loved Zabrinski, and they, they support this, the furries on two tours or three tours, maybe. I can't remember. But, you know, I saw them do really big gigs. I saw them support Coldplay, and I loved their records. But I always used to think, you should be playing for the, for the Scarlets. <laughs> because um, my dad always talks about this. But... Um, my dad's a rugby obsessive and he, I was doing rugby training when I was about 11 or 12. I was small and rubbish. So, you know, you can be big and rubbish and get away with it. You can be <laughs> small and very talented, but you can't be small and rubbish. <laughs> so there I was. It was raining inevitably. And I was just there with my sleeves over my hands because I was freezing. And Matthew was such a good player. My dad's talking about this like 30 years on. <laughs> I started school in 1992, so yes, pretty much 30 years later. He did two things. He was stood still and he sold a dummy and the two boys who were trying to tackle him fell over, <laughs> like in a sort of sitcom, like a bad sitcom. <laughs> and then he he scored a sort of a try where he ran for about 80 yards and he did that thing, I don't know what it's called, it's a bit like fly kicking or something. It's the thing Campisi used to oh, do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he knew he was going to score. Yeah. But obviously David Campisi was, uh, was playing for Australia against the British Lions or whoever, <laughs> Matthew was 11. <laughs> showboating. And showboating at that age. And then obviously he discovered music and, and the rest is history. And didn't you used to put on coach trips for the school to go and watch Gorky's gigs? Yeah, and well, all, all gigs. So, okay. so frustratingly, you know, Carmarthen's 25 miles from Swansea, whatever it is, but 64 miles from Cardiff. And what, what used to annoy me so much was, you know, we were all, what well, we were in all, but there was a, probably a group of about 15 of us who were obsessed with music. But no bands ever really come further west than Cardiff. They don't even really go to Swansea, no. annoyingly. So the only way of, of seeing a band was if you organised a minibus to the CIA. So there was one, or the Motorpoint Arena as it is now, so there was one sort of autumn where we saw the Furries, Blur, Oasis and Radiohead all within the space of about you know, seven or eight weeks. Yeah. And obviously the support bands. So I saw Furry supported Blur and I saw Teenage Fan Club supporting Radiohead and, and Travis supported Oasis. Yeah. And it was it was really exciting. And then, so the first gig I saw there was the, the Mannix, the Furries and Catatonia in December 96. But I'd seen the Furries at Knappan the previous summer. And the Estevos in Llandeilo, which is up the road from Carmarthen. So, and, you know, I would I would have gone to a gig every night if I, if I could have done. But it meant getting there and transport. My um, cousin, who's a bit older than me, she ran a minibus firm. So she was the person that we were hiring the minibuses from. So you would turn up and then everyone had to chip in a tenner or whatever it was. And then obviously you had to buy your own ticket. It was a bit awkward because some of the boys would bring cans on. But it, was, it was my cousin and she knew I was <laughs> underage. So it was, it, was, it was a bit embarrassing because I was like, oh God, is she going to tell my mum that <laughs> I'm drinking bottles of Budweiser. <laughs> I mean, this sounds like an anecdote from a hundred years ago, but it's pre, pre-internet. pre So yeah. you would get the enemy on the Wednesday and then the gig listings were in the back and then you were to, you were to phone the ticket hotline yeah. and use my mum's debit card. Yeah, yeah. I remember we, 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 didn't, we didn't go to Nebworth because it was just too far from Carmarthen and I was slightly too young, although I did know a few people who went. But um, there's that crazy statistic that one in 17 people or something in Britain Try to yeah, apply for tickets, tickets for Nebworth. They, they could well, have done about fourteen nights. Yeah, or like I mean, I mean, I would have gone, but it was just I was just a bit too young. So yeah, I was too young. I doesn't think. doesn't even reflect the popularity of the band. No. But with the Gorkies, 
they were doing more local stuff. And also then I, I got into other Welsh language groups like like um, Topper and Tustion and who were... T- Tustion again went to my school. They were oh, really? They were promoting boys, yeah, Stefan Kravos. Oh, wow. He'd briefly been in the Gorkies early on. But then Tustion in that, in that era, in that guise... It was him and MC Marbon who released some brilliant solo work, who is actually Griff Reese's cousin. I oh, think. really? I mean, that perfectly sums up. I don't want to say the word incestuous because it's a, pe- <laughs> a pejorative, but the, the Welsh language scene is very small because, you know, there's only 550,000 speakers. Yeah. So if you're interested in alternative music, you you very quickly get to know everyone. And also because of the Esteddfod, it, it has a, a focal point. So, you know, I was going to see local bands in my area and then in the summer, all the bands are playing in one place. So then you meet your compatriots from North Wales or South East Wales or wherever. And I guess it's kind of happening now as well, but there is that sort of um, that central focus, which I guess people like Pist are doing with the, the distribution yeah. and sort of... Yeah, and that's what's so important because now you've got this crop this golden age of of bands and welsh bands it's a bit like the welsh football team it t- tends to be cyclical so i would say in the early 90s you had bands like Dapluggy and a kirf and the gorkies and far coffee Paub, crumb blowers yeah all these all these brilliant groups and then uh, um the best ones started singing in english and or they quit and then it was a, a bit of a lull and it was a bit of a quiet period but then you know it came back and now you've got um, Adwaith and Los Blancos and Alpha, and they are making brilliant records, yeah. really good records. And I, I, I did a stand-up gig for my old school to raise money for a um, an all-weather like astroturf pitch. <laughs> and you know, I was thinking if I, it really made me think if I was sixteen, I think I'd be into exactly the same thing. Yeah. And I think I would find it so exciting that Adwaith have just won a Welsh Music Prize with an album. By the way, <laughs> that is superb. It's amazing. Like musically, so advanced for their years, which sounds like a really old man thing to say, but also it was quite important because it's sort of documenting their lives, their lives as females. Yeah, you, yeah. You know, and it, it felt like it was, yeah, the the right thing for them to um, to win that. No, it, it it's a really great record, and they're a very very interesting group, and they're the they're the full package. But especially, I, I interviewed Alf, Alpha for a thing. And, you know, Gwenwyn getting over three million yeah, streams yeah. is what an achievement. And I love their music as well. And I just think that um, it's very easy to look back on your own teenage years with nostalgia and say, oh, you know, it's not going to be as good. But I think it is as good. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a thrilling thing. Definitely. And then I take it you would have moved to Cardiff then for university. Yeah. And I think um, you were in halls with a, with a friend of mine and former colleague, uh, Chris Wathen. Yeah, the sports writer. Yeah. Um, so Wathen was, uh, he was chief football correspondent for the Western Mail and yeah. um, and uh, is now at the BBC. And I saw him during the Euros. And, you know, that was a, quite a bad time for Welsh football <laughs> when I first got to know Wathen at university. <laughs> and I saw him outside the, uh, after the Russia game when we beat them 3-0. And he just said, what's happened? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, very exciting. So when you moved to Cardiff, you sort of lived there after university, as a lot of people do. Um, you were in a, in a band called Heck. You played guitar. I was, yeah. Got a bit of a, a super group because you had Gemma from Samo Hung and uh, Mike from Mobishopi and International Karate Plus. Yeah, and then um, and our drummer Moggs had been in a band called Shooting and Our Men. So that was an offshoot of McCluskey, who yeah. I was a big fan of. And McCluskey were a brilliant group. And then... Gemma's band Samo Hung were were fantastic and she's a brilliant, you know, front woman and then Mobishopi, they they did a, a single a week on Radio One. And they were the second band to be signed to V two after the Seriphonics. 
And that was really exciting because Mike had done his, they recorded that album in New York with Sonic Youth's producer. So I did that and um, we did a six music session for Mark Riley and we, we spotted the fall. That was, that was, oh, wow. the, that was good. But um, I'd been in bands as a teenager with like the Zabrinsky boys and stuff. But doing it as an adult, I realised, or I understood the sort of rock biographies I'd read a little bit more because it is interesting as adults being in a sort of a group dynamic with his four of you. And to compare it to stand-up, because I was doing stand-up at the time as well, you know, the thing with stand-up is that you're effectively a solo artist, so you've got to answer the emails to book your gigs and then you send the invoices and then you've got to drive yourself to the show and you book your own accommodation. And certainly when I was younger, a bit more scatty and disorganised, <laughs> some of those things would fall by the wayside. I remember being put up by Reginald D. Hunter once in his because <laughs> uh, he'd booked accommodation, he booked a flat, and I'd realised I didn't have anywhere. And he was like, oh, just stay with me. And But you're effectively a solo artist doing it on your own. Whereas with a band, I hadn't realised until I was in a band as an adult, how much admin there is. <laughs> like, and it doesn't go together, does it, being in a band and admin? No, and uh, I hadn't realised how how much stuff you've got to do aside from the music. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed it. But also what's demoralising about music and what I think is so unfair about it is that I made a living as a stand-up before anyone knew who, knew who I was. So I lived in Cardiff and I would drive to Northampton or Leeds or Swansea or Manchester or wherever and I would I would do my set, I would, I would be paid and then I would drive home. Whereas with music, even when you're doing some quite cool stuff, you're often not paid. So when we supported The Fall, we might have got 50 quid. Yeah. And I remember we did a gig in Bethel Green and there was some enemy journalist there and he made us his default track on his MySpace, which was, you know, which dates the anecdote. <laughs> but I, th- I think we might have got 50 quid or 30 quid for petrol. So what we did was we ended up making an EP that we recorded at Toy Box where PJ Harvey used to do a lot yeah, of yeah. this stuff. So all those 30 quids we saved up. But, you know, recording's expensive, gear is expensive, and it's just, it's it's really hard to make to make it work. So I had a, f- a friend of mine, you know, he, he supported bands at the CIA in front of thousands of people, and he'd get 50 quid. Mad. It's just quite unfair. And then you see Phil Collins, who's earning, you know, <laughs> millions. Yeah. And it's, there doesn't seem to be very much of a middle ground. You, you, you either become vastly successful or you have another job. And when you were in that group dynamic, did you find that, um, you know, it was like a democracy or has it inevitably got to become like someone's got to become the sort of default leader? Well, I think we were quite democratic, but then that means you've got to discuss everything. You know, when whenever Noel Gallagher used to talk about it's my way or the highway, you think, well, that that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've I've got a lot of respect for, for bands who are making it work because obviously if you if you end up with management, then they can look after you a little bit. But it's um, there's a fantastic book that really sums this up called Our Band Could Be Your Life, Scenes from the American Indie Underground. Okay. 1981 to 1991 by Michael Azarad. And if you hold being in a band in any sort of kind of romantic way, <laughs> read that book because it's groups that you will have definitely heard of, especially in the early days. There's a bit, there's an anecdote where um, the Battle Surfers were touring America and they had no money, like literally nothing, penniless. And then he found, so they were all ill. They'd had the same cold for six months because they couldn't <laughs> shift it because they're sleeping in a van or yeah. sleeping at the venue. And there's a really funny bit where one of them finds $5 and he just thought, I'm just going to get co- cookies and milk like when I was a kid. So, um, and the whole point was if you found money, you'd split it. So everything had to be, you know, put into the pot. So he's like, okay, well, I'm not going to tell the rest of the guys. So he goes to this <laughs> cafe. And he, 
and he buys cookies and milk and for like half an hour he's happy and he walks back to the van <laughs> they're like you've got a spring in your step and he's like yes you know you know I'm fine I'm normal and then they go have you had cookies and milk and he goes no <laughs> no what, 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 what do you mean and they're like when you, there's oh, milk no. on your lip around your moustache and there's sort of and there's biscuit crumbs in your beard and um, I remember reading a, an interview with the Stereophonics and they, when they were first signed they would do these they would invite all their mates every gig's a party and there's booze everywhere crates of vodka and lager and stuff they're like yeah tuck in and they hadn't realised they were paying for, for it, it yeah. they thought it was free <laughs> But the reason that bands are brilliant is that bands aren't made up of accountants. Bands yeah, no. are bands are made up of musicians yeah. who make those mistakes. <laughs> and talking of um, musicians who just sort of led their own path, complete sort of maverick uh, figure, um, you said you supported the full. What was um, Marky Smith like? Well, we've got a really good fall anecdote, thankfully. So we turned up at about, I don't know, half past five for the sound check. He just dumped his band in America, he'd, I'd seen them live at Reading a few months before, and that band, who were good, he'd got annoyed with them, and he kicked them out of the van and said, you're done, go away. So then he'd driven somewhere, San Francisco, I think, but I could be wrong on that, and it turned up and said, I need a band, please. So then that was the band that, who were playing with him, and we supported them. So we turned up at about half past five, we're going to go on at seven o'clock, and the promoter, John Rostron, I don't know if you're aware of John. Yeah, we'd had him on the, <laughs> on the pod. <laughs> He sort of looked ashen at about six o'clock. He said, I've just called him. He's still in Manchester. <laughs> so the band are there. The band have sound checked and John has gone white. And he went, Marcus Smith assured me he's on the way. So he, so, so he's still in Manchester. So we were meant to be on at eight. And obviously those support bands, very few people see them. But we got pushed back to about nine o'clock. So the place was absolutely rammed. It was the best gig we ever did, I think. So the place is really full, and, and, and the music we made sort of suited, the, you know, we, we suited them as a support act, I think. So we went down quite well, I thought. So I'm absolutely buzzing. Marky e. Smith's still not at the venue. He's, st he's still in England somewhere. <laughs> and then eventually, at about 10 o'clock, you know, the crowd again restless. So I think they start to show a small, like a short film. <laughs> and, uh, and the crowd again, you know, justifiably restless. And then eventually he turned up at about half past ten. And then he did the whole thing that you want him to do. He, he turned the keyboard the keyboards down. He, you know, he was muttering. He was shouting at the audience. <laughs> he was turning the bass amps down. And it, and my, I went with my friend who'd been a huge fan of them since Hex Induction Hour and, you know, the early 80s. And he'd never seen them. And he said, I can't work out if this is the best or the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he was a, a, a hero of mine, Marky e. Smith. That guy, actually, was in Manchester with work and he'd gone into a post office and uh, Marky e. Smith was just sat there drinking cans <laughs> and he couldn't believe it. So eventually he left and my friend went up to the lady at the counter and he said, sorry, I, I've got to ask this. Was that um, a musician called Marky e. Smith? And she went, yeah, yeah, that's my son. <laughs> 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 but yeah, great, um, yeah, fantastic group. You mentioned needing to have a job earlier on in your career and it's come up a, a couple of times on the podcast. Um, you mentioned John Rostron in his episode, we talked about it, the Europa Cafe. Yeah. You worked there with an amazing array of, of, of people who went on to amazing things, Kate LeBon, Hugh, uh, H. Klein, uh, Gemma Roper herself, uh, Sean Harris, Mark from Isla, and yeah. then uh, Steve, Sweet Babu. Yeah, so Sean Harris, who wrote Man Down and yeah. Never Mind the Buzzcocks and other, other brilliant stuff. I worked with her for years. And well, I've known her since primary school, my best friends. And then, yeah, you had Kate LeBon, who you knew was brilliant, and Steve Black, who you knew was brilliant, and Gemma, who you knew was brilliant. Laura Bryan from the band um, King Alexander, who okay. one of my favourite groups. She worked there as well. Yeah. And uh, there was a guy who was studying jazz performance. He was a brilliant 
guitarist. I think what sums up that cafe is the owner was a music obsessive himself. He loved the fact he had all these people who were either comedians or musicians working for him. But I was it was lunchtime and it was busy and the guy who was studying jazz performance, he, he had his acoustic guitar and he was listening to some Miles Davis or something on his headphones and he was jamming and ignoring the customers. <laughs> So there was they were queuing out of the door and I was I was trying to make a jacket potato and <laughs> coffee at the same time. I said to him, I said, I'm, you, please do that at two o'clock when they've all had their lunch. So uh, yeah, we we put on a few gigs. Aeros played and we um, we had a, we had a freak beat and psychedelia night. Almost got closed down because obviously the Angel Hotel is just above it. Yeah. And we were way, way too loud and the Angel Hotel manager came. I thought he was going to hit me, he was so angry. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, we got Eros Charles to play and that was really good. And it was, it was one of those places where if you liked music, you would often, you know, turn up just to, to hang out and yeah. stuff. And it was, it was really good. And, and also because everyone was in a band, you, if someone had a gig or if they were offered a gig, you could always find cover because we kind of all helped each other out a bit. Also, Kate LeBon, who's made some great records and everyone justifiably talks about her music, um, was absolutely incredible by the counter. <laughs> Fingers crossed she'll be a musician for the rest of her life. Yeah, but if not, she's got a very bright future in cafe <laughs> because my so efficient, <laughs> so efficient. And when we were busy on a Saturday, if there was something on at the stadium, we were on the corner. If there was like um, you know rugby league or or um, uh, speedway. speedway, and we were you know there were a hundred people in there, all, all one in fry up. The, the speed at which that person, at which that woman can work, and never gets never gets uh, flustered. flustered. Yeah. I was rubbish, but she was she was amazing. Yeah. And um, around this time, uh, I suppose you uh, were starting out in stand up, and you met John Robbins very early on, wasn't it? Yeah. So if you start doing stand up in Cardiff, it's still the same. You you tend to do a lot of gigs in Bristol, and you know, vice versa. So my second or third gig was John's second or third gig and we met in Cardiff and then once we'd met you then you know you're on the bill all the time together so we, we got to know each other very quickly and we reached the same sort of points in our career at the same time so our first Edinburgh shows were in 2009 and first Edinburgh's in 2007 and all that kind of stuff and you know we uh, shared similar a shared uh, sense of humour and we were the same age and um, so yeah we were, we were we were good mates and whenever I used to do gigs in Bristol I would stay in his flat and it was uh, it was really nice and I mean I talked about that scenes from the American Indie Underground book and um, obviously the Buttle Surfers are, anecdote makes it sound horrible but if you read the article on Fugazi the interesting thing with that is because they really felt that they were pioneers of, of this scene and, and it was a very community orientated scene so they would you know, they would perform in every city in America. They always had a network of people to stay with and, and stand up at that level is, is is quite similar. So, you know, I would try and get John gigs and he would try and get me gigs and we'd give each other promoters numbers and stuff. And and, and that still goes on. That's that's still very much the case. It's one of my favourite things about doing stand-up is the, the friendships you make. And um, we were saying earlier about... Um Europa having like a sort of real sort of cultural sort of fraternity there and another place um, that certainly had a sort of Welsh rock fraternity is the Yellow Kangaroo. I think it was the drinking hole of um, Catatonia and Furies at the end. Where you was did it? Early. Yeah, yeah. Cat- oh, I didn't know that. Ke- Keris and I think uh, Reese Moyne was saying you, you, you quite regularly used to have to go and like drag Keris. What's and, a rough uh, out of, uh... <laughs> Also, I mean, I saw, I saw Russell Howard perform there. I saw John Richardson perform there. Some really brilliant comedians. Robbins did loads of gigs there. It's a tremendous community, Welsh community called Noel James, and who's excellent. And uh, his flatmate, a guy called Matt Price, was 
It was a, still a fantastic comic. They, we all did gigs there. The gig was practically unplayable. <laughs> it was it was almost impossible to do well at that gig. You had to be. It was such a rough pub. I guess the sort of gigs you have to cut your teeth. Yeah, teeth and they made no concessions to the fact that there was a gig on. <laughs> So, I don't know if the pub is still there, actually. Don't but, think um, so, no. Yeah, I used, to, I used to dread it. It was, you know, I, you would do Chapter, which was always quite an easy show. So, Chapter was on the Friday night, and then the Yellow Kangaroo was on the Sunday. And so, the Friday would go quite well. I'd be nervous all Saturday, and then Sunday, <laughs> terrified. And then the gig would go badly, and I'd drive home and think, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> but as you said, you met John there, and we talked about the show you did on XFM. You moved to BBC Radio 5 with Dave Masterman, the producer. Yeah. Your relationship with John and I guess the openness you have was quite new, fresh, or just not that readily available. Yes, and we were lucky because that slot had been on a Sunday morning, which was our slot, it had always been the comedy slots. We were replacing Josh Whitaker yeah. and... Previously, they'd had Adam and Joe for years, Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, Jimmy Carr, Russell Brand. There was a, a, a legacy of comedians doing that Tentle One slot. Danny Wallace had been in there as well, I think. And so we were never really asked to be DJs. We were asked to be funny and play songs. So we never really tried to be DJs. And I think, you know, you, you then develop a style where if something goes wrong, you, you, know, you admit it. And also, we, we hadn't done it before, so I... What I like about those old shows is that we are effectively rubbish, really, but because we were both match-fit circuit comics, mm. I think we were funny. Yeah. But we were still far from slick, but obviously much improved, because how, how, how could you do something for five years without getting slightly better? <laughs> so, but we're, st- we're still in comparison with the people on Five Live. You know, it's got Nicky Campbell and people like that, and, and Tony Livesey. They, they, they're experienced broadcasters. Stephen Nolan, Emma Barnett. You know, they don't get it. They don't get stuff wrong. Adrian Childs doesn't no. mess up in the way that oh, Kermode and Mayo don't mess up. So when we do mess up, I mean, Kermode and Mayo are um, slightly looser, but, um, you, know, you know, they know what they're doing. <laughs> I mean, Mayo has been on the radio for 40 years or something. Yeah. When we mess up and then we laugh about it, the people who might not like us are just like, what is this? <laughs> So on, on X, FM, and then when it became Radio X, I never felt that there were listeners who didn't want to listen. Whereas on Five Live, you've, we, we have people tuning in, hoping that it's someone talking about Brexit or <laughs> Meghan Markle or, you know, what's happened in, you know, Donald Trump and Iran. And then it's just the two of us <laughs> larking around. And I kind of think, well, no wonder uh, you're sending us texts in all capitals. <laughs> in those um, earlier XFM shows, it was definitely... Um, you know, the, the feedback you'd get from uh, listeners who, you know, would be open with you about, you know, their struggles with mental health and things like that, that you didn't talk about that, really. There's obviously a few bits with John talking about the, the end of his relationship and that, but just that sincerity, that openness of your feelings, I guess, that um, you didn't really hear that on the radio that no, often. No, I think um, we never set out to get those emails from no. people, but I think it's probably comes from the fact the show isn't mean mm. you know we make fun of each other but it's not mean I, like mm. I really like you know, he's one of my best friends yeah. and the feeling is reciprocated and I think maybe probably you don't actually have very many male friendships in the media that aren't based on sort of I hate this word banter Yeah. and so even I mean that this, the, the programme itself has changed now but even if you looked at if you look at Mock the Week from the late 
2000s. It's very combative. And, you know, it's now a different show, actually. But there was, there was certainly in the 90s, it was, it was lots of men being <laughs> nasty to yeah. each other. And I think that by not doing that, for some reason, people found it quite uh, comforting. But, but again, that's, that, that was by accident and not design. We didn't set out to do... We just set that out to be ourselves because you, you can't maintain artifice for that long for three hours every no. every week for five years. It's, it's impossible. So what, what's been so useful to come out or heartening is that when I meet listeners, when we do tour shows or, or whatever, I always like them because they, they're, like, they're like us. And so then it, was, it, it makes the gigs much easier because you're not, you're not performing to people who might think that you're something different to what you actually are. So I don't know, I like, like uh, if, I, if I think of my favourite bands... You know, I can't think of many horrible people who's, who like the Gorkies. Like, whenever I used to go watch the Gorkies, I always felt like I was in a room full of like-minded people. Or yeah. Same with any of the bands I liked, really. And, you know, when I went to see Stephen Malcolmus, I didn't think, well, yeah, he's, he's clearly a racist, he's a homophobe, <laughs> you know, he's a misogynist. It's, you, you, you sort of... And that's, the, I think, the powerful thing to come out of music. What I used to love about going to see bands on those minibus trips when I was at school was that... You know, Carmarthen. I am. I love my hometown, but it is a, a small town like any other, and so not everyone was into OK Computer. Then you know, you get people make fun of you in the street from a slightly different haircut or whatever, and then you'd go to a gig, and you'd walk in, and everyone would have your haircut, and you think, "Where have you been? Where, where do you live then?" I'm just like, "Well, I remember going to see Supergrass at the Students' Union in Cardiff." So you walk in and there's 1,500 people who look like Gaz Coombs. And I think, hang on, so where are you in the day? <laughs> because I, I'm walking around town and it's just me wherever I go. And I get stick for it. If I go to, you know, if I go to a club or something, if I, or it's sometimes if I'm just walking in the park, someone will shout at me for having sideburns. <laughs> and now there's 50, have you all been bust in? I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. But that's a very powerful to feel part of a tribe or to find yeah. your tribe when you're a teenager is actually a massively important thing, I think. And now, obviously, you'd be doing it online. Yeah. But in those days, you had to go to a gig. I remember going to see the Seahorses at the Students' Union. And it's about 1997. It was after my GCSEs, actually. So, yeah, it would have been 97. And he was going for it me in the queue. And he had a Smiths T-shirt on, a cardigan, and the big Queen is Dead era quiff. And... For a kickoff, the difference in pop culture between 87 and 97 was huge. So he was the only one who looked like that. And I bought my first Smiths albums probably in late 96, early 97 from a record fan, Carmarthen. And the band had split up 10 years before. Now, 10 years ago, was that 2010? I'm, I still, I've got those clothes. I still listen to those records. It feels like yesterday. But the difference between 87 and 97, if I, I bought Rank, the live album, from a record fan for, for five quid. It felt like holding a, a historical artifact <laughs> in my hands. <laughs> I remember stood buying this guy with a big quiff and stuff and a, a meters murder t-shirt. I'm thinking, what is your day like? <laughs> the abuse you must get for looking like Morrissey ten years after the band split up. But you know, he he'd clearly found his thing, and and I I always I, that's why I always love like goths and because I think great you found your yeah. thing. I love that. I guess that's the thing you you talk about. You know, you, you you're finding. I guess other people, especially now online, you know, there's huge communities. And then when you're listening to the podcast and or the show on, on XFM and people are coming and saying, really help me with this. 
I guess from my personal point of view as well, it did help me cope with, you know, my struggles with the darkness because it made me feel like I'm not alone as well. So oh, thanks for that. We we got we did um we did a show at the Shepherd's Bush Empire and it was the a record bar take for a seated um, performance. <laughs> and I think it was because it was a lot of people they were into the show, which was great. They listened to the show and they enjoyed it. And then, but I think they thought that they were the only ones. Because so that show, I, there were people coming from all over the, the UK. We had one, one guy came from Australia, actually, incredibly. So then they all met and then they all got drunk together. Yeah. It was brilliant. It was really... And there's a huge community on, on Facebook now. And you talk about the difference between accident and, and by design, but you do another podcast with John called How Do You Cope, which deals with those um, issues. Yeah, well... Um, you know, again, I can't stress this enough. We we just talked about our lives and were sympathetic to each other. I mean, we're not psychiatrists or anything, although John is a hugely emotionally intelligent bloke. But we've both always been interested in what's behind the curtain, I suppose. And the two of us talking to each other about our lives was, was the thing, other than the, the humour behind it, was the thing that seemed to resonate with our listeners. So when we moved to Five Live, they wanted us to do a second podcast. So we thought, well, let's 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 do something slightly more. I suppose it is more serious, but but you, you um, there's levity in it. And so we talked to Sally Phillips about what it's like to have a child with Down syndrome, and Paul Sinner, the comedian and the quizzer, because of his his Parkinson's diagnosis. We discussed Tom Bradby's insomnia. You know, lots of things, and and they were they, they were really interesting, very humbling conversations. And another podcast you do is a Welsh language one, Doi Aithin Menenith, um, two languages, one brain. That's um, it, yeah. Yeah, and um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about bilingualism, because obviously you have a bilingual family, I guess. You're sort of bringing your children up speaking Welsh, but you yeah. live in London. And, well, it's much harder in London. Yeah. And I now understand why my mum was so desperate for there to be a Welsh unit in Halford West. And, and now I understand why people campaign for Welsh language education, because... You know, try as you might, London is a you know it's 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 in England. So what I find really sparks my I mean my son's too young, but my, with my daughter, what what sparks her Welsh speaking is when she spends time with her cousins or my parents. So Izzy Izzy works really hard to learn. So what's happened now in in our house? I mean, we now have two children, so she doesn't have lessons anymore because it's all a bit hectic. But um, a sort of pigeon language has developed where I don't think I've said bread or milk, you know, or bed or sleep in English for years. But, you know, to, to compare that to my, to my upbringing, I mean, we, we spoke Welsh at home, but obviously watched English telly and I, you know, I had English speaking friends and I'd grown up in Halford West as well. So I, I, I knew that, you know, there were plenty of people who couldn't speak Welsh, even though we were in Wales. My grandparents, certainly on my father's side, couldn't actually speak very much English. So my my um, dad was from uh, the Gwendraith Valley, which in the 91 census, which is a sort of tumble and croissants of my childhood, it was well into the 90s. So I, I, I didn't, I'd never met anyone who didn't speak Welsh mm. from where my grandmother lived. And because of the kind of close-knit community it you know, it is. I knew all of her neighbours and they all spoke Welsh and all the kids in the street and they all spoke Welsh. So... Yeah, and Carmarthen's just, you know, it was a majority Welsh-speaking county, so you'd hear it in the street all the time. So, it, so to be honest, it, was, it wasn't something I really paid much attention to because it hadn't really been taken away from me or I didn't feel it was under any threat. You know, Haverford, Haverford West and that part of South Pembrokeshire 
has been a slight aberration f- for since the Flemish mm, were yeah. invaded a thousand years ago. So that, you know the Lanska line and all that stuff, which has a Wikipedia page if you'd like to read it. <laughs> so I would, you know, that that that's always been different, and and a lot of my um, parents' relatives, um, my extended family, are so Welsh from very Welsh speaking backgrounds. So yeah, it was it was it was a uh, it was the language of of the home. But now I live in London. I'm I'm desperate for my kids to speak it. But it is it is you know I'm I can't lie about it. it is it's very very difficult. You mentioned that you haven't said the the English word for for bread or, or milk at home for a while, and you had a stand up show Hallelujah on uh, S4C on Christmas Day. Yeah, and there's a, a segment in there where you talk about bringing um, Betty up speaking Welsh at home, and yes, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Well, it's thank you. It's 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 um. It's interesting because my nephews go to a Welsh school, but my brother-in-law uh, is a Muslim, so they go to a mosque on Saturday. And he is, you know, my nephews, they are, they're, that's the future. You know, they are mixed-race Welsh speakers who, who speak Welsh at home who go to a Welsh school, but with a different background. You know, my, my entire family are from Carmarthenshire in the bottom end of Ceredigion. I mean, if I was ever on, um, what's that programme called? Who do you think you are? It'd be so, <laughs> so boring. So yeah, it, it's, it's, been, it's been quite interesting because also my daughter goes to a school that's got lot of kids from all kinds of different backgrounds. And like her, one of her best friends speaks Spanish in the house. So she's very proud of it because it's, it's the thing that sets her apart in the way that um, I was talking to someone the other day and he was brought up in, in London, but he's, he's Italian. And he, you know, they spoke Italian at home, and and he said he initially was a bit embarrassed. And then he got to a certain age, he was like, "No, actually, I think this is this is great." So that 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 mix is is a very positive thing, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to um, talk to you about was I, I think the Welsh brand of humour is quite sort of unique and sort of self-deprecating, and also sort of um, revels in the sort of uh, melancholia of Wales. If it makes sense, how would you? I mean, do you think that? A nation can have a collective humour, or how would you describe um, Welsh humour? I think, well, it, I mean, you know, you, you you can't paint broad brushstrokes like that. But what I, what I would say is that we're a we're a country of small towns and villages. So there are six cities in Wales: Cardiff and Swansea, Newport, Saint Asaph. Come on, that doesn't count. Saint <laughs> David's. Come on, that doesn't count. Bangor, um, which is a town, but it's got a cathedral. So it's then I think. It is quite difficult to be the big I am. So, so Welsh comics, if you if you look at even the most famous ones, they tend to be on the back foot a little bit because it's hard. You know, if you are different, you stick out because everyone knows you. So, I always think that with Scottish humour, especially the more abrasive stuff, a lot of those comics are Glaswegian. Now, Glasgow is Britain's second biggest city. It's yeah. huge. It's absolutely massive. You can get lost in Glasgow. It's get lost in Cardiff and everyone ends up knowing each other. <laughs> yeah. So it I think it is in as a as a very broad generalization, slightly more whimsical, I think. And also if you're talking about lots of different villages. So for instance in, in Gwendraifali where my dad is from, my dad would say that he is from Tumble and my grandmother would say that she was from Cross Hands. Now they are two different villages and they are discussing the same house. <laughs> and but what happens is bizarrely Someone from, if you tell some, ask someone from Tumble, where are you from? Are you from Croissant? I go, no. So you've got I- identities, yeah. very, very important, but at a kind of m- micro level. Yeah. And I just think that's, there's, there's a lot of humour in that. But um, that stuff, it's, it's quite difficult to make that travel. So uh, again, if you're, if you're doing that kind of stuff in England, you need to qualify it a little yeah. bit. It's like little things like there's, um, 
a refuse centre in, well, we always used to say it was Llanfarog, but um, a friend of mine will argue with me and say, no, actually, it's in Nantacaus. <laughs> and and <laughs> you think, why are we arguing over it? <laughs> and it's because, because he feels pride. Yeah. He's like, I want to be from the village yeah. where the tip is. <laughs> so, um, and I, I think that that, those small, like, for instance, um, I remember be, uh, a friend of mine met someone from Nelson, which is, um, you know, in the South Wales Valleys. And uh, I said, where are you from? He said, Nelson, centre of the universe. <laughs> and it's like in when Wales playing football, the flags with, with, and it's not Cardiff and Swansea, it's the most obscure yeah. little villages, ones you've got to Google. <laughs> but rather than, you know, rather, it's like uh, the stereophonics always used to say, well, we're not from Aberdeen. Yeah. We're yeah, from Kamarman. Yeah. You think, come on, mate, Aberdeen's he's walking <laughs> distance. Market, so yeah. It's walking distance. It's walking distance. You say yeah. you're from Aberdeen. Yeah. From <laughs> um, In an interview gave with a friend of the pod, in inverted commas, Dave Owens, he's been on three times now already, about football mainly, which obviously you're a big fan of, of the Lewash national team and, and Swansea City. It was featuring this sort of wonderful... Uh, retro shirt exhibition at, at St Fagans. You talked about how it's a golden age of, of Welsh comedy, Welsh music and, and Welsh football. And I want to talk to you about the golden age that we're in with Welsh music at the minute. It's one of the sort of um, motivating factors to doing this podcast. You know, I said I'm a Welsh learner. I'm also stuck in my ways when it comes to music. I was sort of like stuck in 2004. So I'd, I didn't want to miss out on this. And, and you played a few of the bands on on your show with the Keeper Session Sessions. And it was the first time actually that I, I, I heard Adwaith. Adwife are from Carmarthen as a Uber, as a, their Libertino label mates, Los Blancos. What is it about uh, Carmarthen that produces these great bands? I think it's probably the fact that other bands have been there already and done it. Yeah. I think this is probably true of somewhere like Manchester. And I think that, and also then what happens is all of the stuff that you need for a, for a scene to thrive develops because you need someone to furnish all that stuff. You need someone to put gigs on and you need someone, you need, you need there to be a, a rehearsal room or a studio, you know, music box in Cardiff. You know, everyone's rehearsed yeah. there and you, you, you need venues. And, and obviously I'm, I'm out of touch because I've lived in Carmarthen since I was uh, 18. But with Adwaith and Los Blancos, the exciting thing is that, you know, they're brilliant, but they're, they're following a sort of well trodden path because of Zabrinsky and Texas Radio Band and the Gorkies before them. And I mean I, I don't know these. I've 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 met the I've met Gwentlian from Adwaith. I've met one or two from Los Blancos, but um I, I don't know how inspiring those other groups were. But it I, I think what it does is is it means that making music is is a viable is a viable future. Yeah. And it's not something that appears to be pie in the sky. Now now if you're just to compare it, if, if you're a wannabe actor from Aberystwyth, yeah. now you have Taran Egerton, yeah. who's won a Golden Globe. So when you're telling your mum and dad or your teachers at school, I'd like to be an actor, actually, I'd like to go to Hollywood, and you go to a Skull Penwethig, then they're not going to say, don't be ridiculous, yeah. get your head down and, and you know get a set of A-levels and, and go to university and work in an office and go and work for the DVLA or whatever. You're like, okay, well, well, he's done it. And I th I think that's very, very important. Yeah, definitely. He's even got, um, I think, actor from Aberystwyth, Wales, on his Twitter bio, which yeah. is like, this is a small thing, but it's really important. And people like Iwan Rayon in Game yeah. of Thrones. So, Ellis, thank you ever so much for talking with us today. Um, it's about this time in, in the podcast that we, we ask our guests to name an album by a Welsh artist that means a lot to them. Favourite, the best, however you want to sort of uh, categorise it. Who have you gone for today? My chosen artist 
um, Duplugi, and the album I've chosen is Pissed oh, from okay. 1990. And I was, I'd a, I was very lucky. I had a very cool school teacher, history teacher called Owen Llewellyn, who taught me throughout school. And then when I was in sixth form doing history A level, he said, "Listen, you you, you want to listen to this group because I know you like music." So we just, I just started a band or something. So he said, "You want you want to listen to this." Because I think we were probably having the discussion about whether we were going to sing in English or Welsh because, you know, the Furries were singing in English and the Gorkies had, had made the switch as well. And he said, no, you should sing in Welsh and here's why. So he lent me Weir and Pissed and then eventually lent me Libertino. And I just could not believe what I was hearing because what was so intoxicating about it is that he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's an artist, his entire output is in Welsh. He's from Abertavi, which is just up the road. He's singing about my experiences. But what was so thrilling was he didn't seem to like Wales or Welsh no. people or Welsh <laughs> culture. But the, the, the reason that was so brave is that say you're Marky Smith from and you live in Manchester. Manchester's a huge city, so there's there's plenty of places to hide. And if you've burnt all your bridges in Manchester, you can move to London or potentially America. For instance, if you if you're a good band from Manchester, you know you'll end up in New York, right? Dave Dave lives in Abertavie. Now he criticised producers of TV shows for being narrow-minded, the people who ran gigs for being sort of unimaginative. He criticised the audiences for just treating gigs as sort of social events rather than listening to the music. And you know that the, the Roger Cymru and SVC. Now he's in a Welsh language band, so the only people who are going to play him are SVC and Roger Cymru. I mean, he ended up on Radio One, but that was. You know, just a bit of luck because of John Peel. Also, if you if you criticise people in Welsh language culture because it's so small, you are eventually going to bump into those people <laughs> in Tesco. And I just thought it was so brave. Yeah. But I think if I had to explain Dutblagi to someone who hadn't heard them before, I would say, okay, take the lyrics of Gil Scott Heron or Leonard Cohen or Nick Cave, Bob Dylan, I would say, Ian Curtis from Joy Division, um, Smith's era Morrissey before he turned into Nigel Farage. <laughs> And probably Niger from Half Man Half Biscuit, actually. And he he's absolutely as good as he's my favourite. And it was very funny. And not and not enough people talk about how funny Dabuggy's yeah, yeah, lyrics yeah. are. Like they make me laugh out loud. <laughs> but also his in terms of his politics, you know, he criticised Plaid Cymru and stuff, and he criticised S4C, and he was I can never work out if he was an anarchist, a socialist, or a communist. Yeah, or all three. Or all three. <laughs> but. Um, you know, he, he had a big problem with the Welsh media, the Welsh middle classes. Also, what, what I found so just exciting about it all and compelling was that he's a deeply clever bloke. And he often clarified, he articulated thoughts that I'd half had, yeah. hadn't finished. Yeah, yeah. I was probably 16 or 17 and he would hit the nail on the head about a th little thing that had been nagging at me for years. And he would say it in a way that was more eloquent, more articulate and cleverer and funnier than I could ever manage. Yeah. So often when I heard lyrics, it was like he was expressing thoughts I hadn't had yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, I'm, and, and, and the thing with Duplug is well, because I, I got into them in, in about 97, I was doing my A-levels, the band had split up by that point. So I had their whole back catalogue. So it was a, a, a finished body of work. Yeah. And the, the reason I think he's better than, say, Marky Smith, and I love The Fall, I love Marky Smith, is that Marky Smith's lyrics are often, there'll be lyrical snapshots and there'll be the odd turn of phrase that just stops you in your tracks. But the thing with Dave, the reason I think Dave is so talented is that his lyrics are far more coherent and they work as finished pieces. So if you look at Canny Gumry, which I think is the best song they ever did, yeah. is, is an on pissed actually, it's on Libertino, which came out a few years later. It is... It's, it's a, a treatise or an essay and it's got a beginning and a middle and an end and it all rhymes and he just nails his subject. 
he just absolutely smashes it. And I think he does the same with Am and you know Iganin and and on all sorts. And it was I just thought, my God, this guy is so so gifted. And also, I think especially when you're a bit younger, it's very easy to romanticise the outsiders. And there's a really funny half man half biscuit song called "Look Dad No Tunes," and it really criticises. I didn't criticise, but it really um, hammers bands who try and imply that they're you know these sort of outliers of society, and and it really hammers people who'd like to imply that they're these mavericks and visionaries and actually their lives are quite comfortable. But the thing with Dave, I, you know, I, I don't want to romanticise um, his drinking or his or some of his mental health problems because yeah. he was he was ill at, at times in the 90s. He was quite ill, but he absolutely walked it as he talked it. And, you know, I was I was very aware that he was it was completely about expressing himself. So, yeah, maybe he could have written in English, but he was he was more comfortable writing in Welsh. He he often didn't like Welsh popular culture, and he would say, you know, my how my popular culture, well, growing up was sitting with my mum and dad and watching Coronation Street and discussing the plot lines in Welsh. And I was yeah. like, yeah, that's, that's a bit like my family actually. And a lot of Welsh bands, I always assumed if they were only singing in Welsh because of my age, I think, because the Gorkies had started singing in English and the Furries had done it. I always thought, well. If you're going to stick with the Welsh, because you're not going to make any money, you must really, really love Wales. <laughs> love Wales too much. Yeah. And I love Wales. I'm glad I'm from there, but I don't... You know, it has its flaws. But what Dave did was he absolutely went for those flaws and they would they would have bad gigs. They would get bottled off and stuff. And, and he also w- was very, very content to attack sacred cows, which was just so brave. And I'd never really seen anyone do that so... Songs like Davide One and Aglau. I'd yeah. never really heard anyone criticise Davide One in that way. And at Clapan in the early 90s, 91, I think, Davide One was performing and he got on and he, you know, he started chanting, you know, Nuremberg, Tree Dick Tree, Nuremberg 33. And I think he got beaten up by the bouncers. And, <laughs> and I just thought, this, this, this maverick is from Abertavia. Yeah. You know, and, and also in terms of the music, you have to give path her to. Yeah, tos. definitely. Because I think it's very easy just to talk about Dave's presence. Um, and his lyrics, but the music's great. So I really, really like the the, the post punk abrasive stuff you've got on Weir and yeah. Pissed. You know, Christian and a Kibbutz or something. Or I Davide one and a Glau is a good example. But then also you listen to songs like Dominiade Da. They're really beautiful songs. And I Novel or Hovel is you know it's it's eerie and it's it's just a great record. And then you've got stuff like Am, which is just brilliant pop music. Yeah, I don't think that a lot of lyrics work as poetry, but I do think that poetry tends to work, poetry tends to work as lyrics. And a lot of the really great lyricists that we talk about, it wouldn't really stand up as poetry, but Dave's stuff really does. And I remember when I was in a band, we were about 17 or something, and we were talking about if we were gonna sing in Welsh or English or both, and I said, well, I've really gone into that bluggy actually, so I think we should sing in Welsh, but what I'll do is, just like Dave, I'll talk about, uh, I'll talk about the media and I'll talk about politics and I'll have all these interlocking puns that work in English and in Welsh and I'll translate English idioms into Welsh in a way that hasn't been done before. That's really, really funny and, and we'll do that. And my and Poich, who was in Zabrinski, who was the, the drummer, said, yeah, I mean, mm, that does involve you becoming the greatest Welsh poet of our age. I was like, yeah, oh, yeah, shit, yeah. yeah damn. It's a formula, but that is not yeah. an easy one to achieve. God, I've got to be the Welsh poet, the greatest Welsh poet of my age. Yeah, damn. Griff Reese mentioned that before. I think um, we, we talked about the video now on S4C that Garen Jarman sort of ran. 
and Griffey said that Jarman and David Edwards are probably the only two Welsh poets. Yeah, and you know, I think Griff's a brilliant lyricist, yeah. and I got a bit of a political awakening from listening to bands like Antrem. Yeah, and also Disorder, by the way, what a fantastic I name know. for a band. <laughs> and I really liked a Kirf, and and if you listen to something like I don't know, Anwabadhuchni or something, that's a song you can punch the air to with your mates at a big gig. But whenever I listen to Dave's music, I got the impression that I was getting an insight into a genuine, genuine radical, someone, someone who doesn't think like other people. And I think, I, I cannot explain this enough, he really vocalised thoughts that I hadn't finished or hadn't had yet yeah. in a way that when you're that age is just profoundly moving. You think, my God, this guy exists. And he's nailed it. And he did it 10 years and ago. And he did it 10 years ago and he's nailed it. And then I became very upset that I, I was never going to get to see him live and yeah. all that kind of stuff. John Cale's from Carmarthenshire. Oh. Just remember, he's from Garnon, <laughs> which is up the road, not quite Carmarthen. But, you know, he made, he, he made a lot and he was prolific. Well, we actually um, went up to uh, Carnarvon last week to, to talk to Rhys Moyne, who obviously was in Our Reven and formed Our Reven Records, which uh, featured a couple of that bluggy songs on Kamato yeah. Wachuk. Uh, and yeah, yeah. he'd take it down to London and, and carry a bag full of records and go to like Enemy, Melody Maker, John Peel, and give him those uh, those compilation albums and obviously Peel's a big fan and uh, a big advocate of that bluggy and, and Welsh language music in general and he sort of said that the fact that it was in a different language made it feel um, infinitely more profound and he also didn't need the, to speak the language to know it was good and you know he wish he learned to speak it because obviously he spent a lot of time there uh, when he was younger and you said something similar in 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 a podcast uh, you did that you you want people to learn Welsh so well, then they can you know get his what I'd say about Dave and the lyrics in particular because I've met you know Pat's music is brilliant and I was at university with a guy who's who's obsessed with that plug he was from Bolton <laughs> and he he had no idea what Dave was talking yeah, about yeah. he just liked the music so I really don't want to do a disservice to Pat yeah however if you listen to a song like Canny Gymru yeah now Canny Gymru what was so exciting about it and what was so felt so risky is that he criticises all the people I didn't like and he, he sort of skewers Welsh-speaking middle-class social conventions and mores and all that kind of stuff. And it's really, really funny. But the lyric is just this fantastic, cogent, coherent piece of work. But there's a bit where he goes, um, Traverary Temmesi Dar Hellstrayon. Now, Hellstrayon was a thrice-weekly um, magazine show which literally translates as telling stories. So it was human interest, light stories. <laughs> now, I don't need... To, it ran for about 15 years or something. I don't need to tell either of you two. There aren't enough stories <laughs> to sustain that show, okay? So it, very, very weak. You know, the, the, they'd have items, they'd be like, oh, we're, we're talking to the uh, butcher in Lampeter, who also happens to be the pharmacist. <laughs> you know, like the, that level. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we're talking to the kites champion from Fistrasol, <laughs> who plays kites with his brother. And and that's the story. And the thing with Dave, because he talked about the Estevod, like obviously the Estevod was a big part of my upbringing. My sisters competed, and even I, I competed as well to an extent. But I went to a very Estevodic school. I'd never heard anyone say, why are you turning poetry into competition? How can you turn poetry into competition? I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he just had this way of pinpointing the problems I had with Welsh language culture and summarising them in, in a in a song. And the thing with speaking Welsh at home and going to a Welsh school, it doesn't mean you have to like every aspect of no. the Welsh language. Because you can't, can you? I mean, if you, 
I met an English person who'd grown up in Kettering, and he said, I like everything about England and, and, and English. You think, well, you're weird. You're an, you're an oddball. Yeah. But because if you speak a minority language, then it, it does so often put a little bit of a chip on your shoulder and you go, well, actually, no, this, you know. And, and it was very exciting to me that Dave didn't seem to have this chip. No. He expressed his thoughts in the language he felt most comfortable in, and it didn't bother him that that annoyed the people who were putting on his gigs, <laughs> the people who should have been buying his records. Because obviously Abertavi is similar to Carmarthen, and it's not far away, and he's about 15 years older than me. So I really recognised all of the, a lot of the cultural references he made. But also the, lyric, the lyrics are funny, like Hamrid Mount Shoy taking in a show oh, yeah. where he's talking about, oh, Ranoch Amintis Athlan, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Oh, he never, I, you know, I, they, these people, they never um, refuse a sandwich, but, but they laugh when anyone else does. <laughs> and they were all people I recognised. Yeah. So in every one of his lyrics, there is a scenario or a person or a thing that I recognise that has bothered me, and he's absolutely skewered it in one. And I know that obviously now, I was talking about my nephew earlier on, the Welsh language experience is now a more diverse one. So you have, especially in, in, in Cardiff, you've got people from mixed race backgrounds or, you know, ethnic minority backgrounds. You might not speak Welsh at home, but are going to Welsh medium school. So Welsh speakers, but they might speak another language at home or they certainly might have a different religious background. Yet when I was growing up, because it was, you know, over almost, well, overwhelmingly white, and it tended, where I grew up, to be people who were from the area. Obviously, you had people who'd moved and had learned, but in the main was people who were from Carmarthenshire and Ceredigion. He really, really, he's a fantastic guy, almost as an observational comedian for criticising things that are funny about the culture and about the language. But also, he's got a great eye for recognising the stuff that's ridiculous. And it's just, it's quite risky, I think, because it's a very small culture. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. You mentioned like Marky Smith and the fall and, you know, there's obviously a lot of um, comparison between them and that bluggy. And, you know, if that bluggy were to sing in the English language that, you know, maybe there were sort of like universal truths in, in some of the lyrics that would translate to, you know, a small town in north of England or something. But I guess it's the fact that he was attacking the the Welsh middle classes or the Welsh language media that singing in Welsh, it made it even more sort of... Um, vitriolic and yeah and you think well if you don't like it singing english then it makes some money yeah <laughs> i mean i got i got to know him a little bit so i've met him a, a little bit and he's the least materialistic person i've ever met i think now they were lucky in the sense that they were at their peak when video now was about yeah. and, and a lot of people get very very nostalgic about video now and they compare some of the programs that came after it you know you know they compare video now very favorably to those programs and say that the the later programs weren't as good now one of the things that no one ever says about video now is a obviously the bands were great and welsh music tends to be cyclical so there was just a crop of really good groups but also the the budget behind video now was yeah. massive so the videos all look fantastic because they were chucking loads of money at it also in a way that you probably wouldn't get now if they had a gap they would they'd be like okay well you know we like so and so let's just put them on again in this series where well, you, you probably wouldn't get that now so they were playing a you know fast and loose with the conventions of tv making so dave made a lot of videos for video now and video now paid properly so it could be his job and you know he lost his job i think having read his biography and i think it's easy to forget 
just how magnetic a presence he is yeah. and how cool he looks. Those videos look fantastic yeah, 30 years on and he just looks so good. He looks like a film star. Yeah. And he's commanding as well, sort of like addressing the camera direct on and sort of owning it and yeah. such a presence. Hugely charismatic. He was lucky that there was a platform for him to be very charismatic that would make him look good. And on a programme that was watched by lots of people because there were lots of good bands around at the time. But he looks like a rock and roll yeah. star. Bands are, are an alchemy. You, you've got to look the part, and you've got to sound the part, and you've got to reflect you know, the culture that's around you. And then you, know, you, you add all that together. That's why there are so few amazing bands, because it's actually really tough to do all that. You've got to be great lyrically and musically. And the band also has to work. You know, so many bands were brilliant, but they would fall out because it's often difficult to get four or five people in the same room together. And sometimes that can lead to great stuff, listen to rumours. But m more often than not, bands just split up. Yeah. So the thing with Dave was he's the least materialistic person I've ever met. And in video now, he often wears this superb coat. It's like a parka. And he just looks really cool in it. I bumped into him a couple of years later and he was wearing the same parka. <laughs> <laughs> so it's at least 30 years old, that coat. Amazing. And it never really, it was never about making a million records. And also to bring it back to when I first heard them at the time, you had indie bands crossing over into the mainstream. So Blur became a, a pop act and Oasis were quite open about wanting to sell millions and millions of records. But it, it, it's very, very compelling to a young teenager who's into mu indie music to have these albums, a body of work that weren't designed to be commercial at all. It was purely, this is the music I like and this is what I want to say. And if I play Klubi Verbach and people throw bottles at me because they don't like what I say, well then, so be it. And they played gigs in in you know in England. There's um I remember I've got footage of them playing a gig in Harlow. And I saw an interview with Pat and she said at the end people liked it and they came and talked to us and wanted to talk to us about the music. Whereas we were playing in Aberystwyth last week and because people didn't like, like what Dave was saying, they were yeah. chucking glasses at us. So he it's just the bravery of the man. He was a, a genuine maverick, I think. Um, I, I can sort of see parallels uh, in terms of the Mavericks and you were saying about the alchemy of all the different influences between um, Dat Bluggy and Super Furries. And I first got into Dat Bluggy through Griff mentioned in the interviews in the late 90s. Obviously, a time lab was on Mung, it's 20 this year. And also on Under the Influence, I don't know, you've got the compilation where Casserole's on that. What, what, what do you, you know, did you used to speak to the guys from sort of Zabrinsky and Gorky's? Were they, you know, what was, were they a big inspiration for them as well? Tapluggy was certainly a big influence on the Gorky's, I think. Yeah. I've read, must have been a diary entry or something, one of Eros's diary entries from the old Gorky's website. And they turned up and there was, and the promoter didn't want to put them on. And then Dave insisted that they, they go on. And I think more than anything, I think he showed that it was possible to do cool stuff in Welsh. Yeah. You know, he, he's another, another example of that. Like yeah. um, a lot of the North Walian bands, Sight Mafia Mr. Hughes is an example of, oh yeah, you can be, you know, you can be really great and come from, you know, Bethesda, whatever it is they're from. And the thing with Dave, the fact that he did five Peel sessions and they were on the tube as well, they were on the yes, Channel 4 yeah, yeah. programme, the tube, you, you know, singing about Davi the One in Welsh. It's, it's, you think, oh, okay, there's a path here for us to follow. I mean, I, I, still listen to those records all the time. So I've, I've just done a Welsh language stand-up tour and in the car on the way to shows I would listen to 
Libertino and we and Pissed because it just gets me in the right frame of yeah. mind. Well, there's definitely a legacy there as well in terms of obviously Pissed and Libertino were the names of two of the main parts of the infrastructure within within Welsh music. They're obviously very influential to not just the artists but people who are interested in music in general. Yeah, and I think to an extent the Welsh music scene or certainly the Welsh media to an extent I think feels a bit guilty that I don't think Dave got the support he should have got in the 80s and 90s he was on SOC a lot because of video now but he was never played with Roger Cymru there's there's this brilliant story of on Hoirach which was um, Leah Melville's show so that she was the the Welsh language John Peel I suppose they did a Dapluggy night where they played two hours of (laughs) Dapluggy And it's on a really fantastic documentary about angst music that's on available on YouTube. And she jokes, she says, as we were playing, you know, as we were an hour and a half in to a, to a two-hour show about Dapluggy, we were joking, saying there'd be some poor sod who's driving from Bangor to Cardiff and he just wants a little bit of Welsh language music <laughs> and he's had this now for 90 yeah. minutes. Some old codger. And it was actually Roger Cymru's top brass <laughs> were doing that journey. And they had Roger Cymru on for the whole way. And uh, the, the programme got axed a few months later. And when he was on, was it Video Now, when he when he starts singing about British Bastard Telecom because they've been privatised. Yeah. And then suddenly the programme, he's not allowed to, to do anything live on S4C anymore <laughs> 30 years later. But it's just, a, you know, for a 16 or 17 year old, that is, there's something very, very alluring about having that devil may care attitude to your own career. Because if he'd played it safe, it wouldn't have been as good. No. And that's, that's the truth of the matter. You know, he was very, very authentic. And I, I think, I'm assuming that he would stand by every one of his, the creative decisions yeah. he made. And I think um, the sort of maverick spirit can be seen in people like Rhys Moyne. Um, and he's more, I, we talked to him last week and he was saying um, that he's sort of like internationalist in his view. So it didn't matter whether it was English or Welsh, as long as the song was great. And there was this endless sort of creativity and progression. That was the main sort of overriding thing. And with um, the Super Furries, obviously, um, they were Welsh language staff with Fuck Off Pub. And then uh, they went to the Ice in the Tank, famously. I was at that gig. Uh, oh, were you? All yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was when in Clandalo, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, in 96. Yes. And yeah. they had to hand out hymn sheets because they weren't allowed to sing in English on yeah, the field. Yeah, the whistling. And um, yeah, I, I think it was only about a year after that when they brought out Radiator when International Languages Screaming was on it, which was quite a big moment, really. Yeah, well, the thing with Dave, Dave also is, is an internationalist and I don't think he believes in the nation state, so I'm sure I've read that in a fanzine interview from <laughs> 1988. But I always assumed, I thought, well, if, you, if you're going to do that, then you'd sing in Mandarin or Esperanto or Spanish or English. But I, so I love the fact that he, he still sang in Welsh about these things. And they did have a very internationalist attitude. So they, would, they, would, they performed abroad. And I just really admire the fact that it was, it was never about selling records. It was about making the best possible thing. And that is the reason that 30 years on, I've got it on my phone and I'm still listening to it in the car because his talent was profound and it does help if you're a Welsh speaker, obviously, even though if you like, certainly if you like post-punk music and a bit of C86 sort of yeah. music, there's plenty in it for you. Like There's a comedian called Michael Legg from Northern Ireland who's a huge Dapluggy fan, doesn't understand a word of it. But if you know what he's talking about, his lyrical dexterity just blows me away time and time again and you know he's just the best he he is the best and uh i feel very very 
glad that I discovered his music when I was a teenager because yeah. I think it's completely altered my personality. Alice, thank you so much for your time. We've taken enough of it already. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. To close this week, we've got a great Welsh language folk song uh, by Eve and Sarah from Carnarvon. They're artists in their own right, but they've recently formed a collaboration and they've got um, an EP coming up in Easter, so look out for that. And this song is called Gaev Gusk, which means hibernation. So no.